Welcome to uh, a frank conversation with Sean O'Neill. Sean is currently the managing director of Adore Group, which uh, we'll find out a bit more uh, later. But uh, more interestingly and importantly, perhaps, and the reason I've invited Sean in today is that uh, he's got uh, an exceptionally interesting backstory. I think the term entrepreneur is overly used. Uh, it's generally applied to people who just set a business up as successful and maybe they sell that business on or uh, they create something with a multi-million pound turnover uh, and then all of a sudden they get this description entrepreneur when actually what they are, a bit like me I think, uh, is a business owner. Um, Sean on the other hand is a genuine entrepreneur and actually started his first business at the tender age of 11. So Sean, welcome. Thank you, Frank. Great it's a to pleasure, have you here. Pleasure to be here. It's been a few weeks we've been trying to get this uh, yes, we, together uh, now. So. Our, our plans do change a lot, <laughs> but when we get together, the conversation's always good. Usually flows. So um, you set your first business up as 11. Now people listening to this will think, oh, that's, that's just daft, that but. There's an interesting story that applies to it, and it is a true story. And I think basically is the foundation of what you've then gone on to achieve with the rest of your life. So tell us about what happened at that tender age of 11. Yeah, that's true. I think there was many years before that, that sort of underpinned and was the foundation. Growing up on a farm, in theory, farmers are all business owners anyway. My, my nan and granddad worked the land and they were always buying, selling animals and we always had to sort of figure out where the next pound was coming from in them days. But sort of early on, I realised that nobody had any money. We were in the middle of a war in Northern Ireland. Of Thankfully, I saw the back end of it. But as I sort of grew up, I realised that People were just struggling. No matter how much many animals they had, no matter how much they worked, how hard they worked, they they never had anything in the bank. And I and it kind of gave me the hunger and I and I think fear to try and find a way out. Which went through my early years. I questioned everything. Why why nobody, ha- why, why nobody was happy, why, every, why people had to fight. And my break really came through when I, when I went to secondary school. And at that stage, I still was questioning everything, rebelling against my mom, my dad, as you do as a kid, uh, thinking that my grandma and granddad were old and uh, not so wise, of which I've found out in later years that they're incredibly wise. But my first day break came when one weekend my, my dad took me to, to his friend's house and he bought me some fireworks and it was my pocket money. My dad used to give me five pound pocket money every day, every week. And after two weeks, he gave me 10 pound pocket money and I went to, to his friend's house. And in those days, living in the border of the north of Ireland and south of Ireland, there was a lot of, uh, what they call smuggling going on back and forward across the border. And uh, 
So these fireworks could only be purchased at a at a Sunday market close to us called Jonesboro. There was lots of illegal markets all around the country, but there were so many of them it was kind of normal. And so as I was got my ten pounds worth of fireworks, I I realized that these were actually twenty pounds worth of fireworks. And as I went home and I was letting them off of my dad, I I thought, well, I'm the only person that can get these. Surely there must be a demand. So not knowing about the supply and demand of uh, what business constantly thinks about. So I went to school the next day, told my friends, I can get fireworks. Don't tell your mom, don't tell your dad, I'll have them in a few weeks. And... I decided the only way to get money together was to make myself suffer. So I got my five pound pocket money off my dad every every Saturday and I got five pound dinner money because it was one pound a day at school. And I didn't eat for four weeks. I remember thinking if I, the fear and hunger for me to succeed, if I'm really gonna complain, I have to do something about it. So I literally starved for four weeks and after four weeks, I had 40 pounds. <laughs> I told my friends, tomorrow's the big day. Don't tell your parents, bring whatever money you can, I'll have fireworks in school. So I got the school bus after school. It cost uh, one pound 50 return at the time on the school bus. And it was about from here to Warrington away. So it was quite a distance away. I arrived, bought my 38 pounds 50 of fireworks robbed a few apples and oranges on the way, as I would always do to try and not starve completely. <laughs> and the next morning I went to school, got the school bus. And when I got off the bus, I had 77 pounds. I doubled my money within 15 minutes. And that was the moment that I, I sort of, it all changed for me. I realized that if I just am able to work hard, think outside the box, and try and deliver something that is fair for both sides, this can work. So instantly I was back on the school bus the next day. Fast forward the story, that, that, that October of 1992, I made £40 into £2,000. Uh, everyone found out, of course, as they did. Uh, my mum and dad were extremely supportive of me. My nan was extremely supportive of me. And the years to come, I, I ended up being one of the biggest fireworks wholesalers in, in the local villages. I went into uh, the, the rag trade. I went into anything I could get with my hands on. And all I did was I brought something that people hadn't got to their doorstep or to school. <laughs> <laughs> and that's entrepreneurship, yeah? Well, yeah, it is. And I guess I didn't even know there was a word entrepreneur until I actually moved to Liverpool. Mm. When I was did in my George 20s. Bush and he was president of the United yeah. States. So. Uh, a few things I really did learn quite early on, which, which is the key to my success now, is I valued people. I never told them lies. I never, I never over, overcharged for anything. And because I was so busy at school, I used to go to school with no books then. 
I used to go with a full bag of fireworks and a pen in my top pocket, which my white shirts used to always, it used to always bust in my white top pocket. My mum used to kill me. But what I valued was that I needed people around me and they needed, uh, and we both needed each other. So I would say to my friends, there's five pounds worth of fireworks. You sell them for a tenner, but give me seven pound 50 back. Let's share the profit. Because I couldn't be everywhere at every stage. I didn't know the word wholesale, I didn't know the word retail, I didn't know the word entrepreneurship. All I knew is that if you were fair with people, you'd get more out of it. Mm. It turns out that my friends just hadn't got the, I guess, the willpower and all the profit that they made, they used to buy more fireworks of me. (laughs) And I had five runners that were my best friends and every one of them got suspended. They all got caught at school. The school was exploding every October, every year, coming up to Halloween. And I was the only one that never got caught. I kept my money, kept kept my head down, and uh, and always worked right through it. So whilst all that's going on, um, I think there's a couple of things, Sean, that, that I'd say. Firstly, you've underplayed the poverty that you were suffering at home because it was an incredibly poor family life that you had. And so I know people now say, oh, I came from a working class background. I'd say I came from a working class background, but I wouldn't consider myself to have come from a poor background. But Northern Ireland back at that time, as a farm mm-hmm. worker, you know, that, that was, that, they were really tough times, weren't they? Well, I think out of, uh, I was kind of lucky because... When I grew up, we had what people call organic. That's another word that I didn't know. Because I used to go out to my garden at the back of the house and I used to pick my, my vegetables and my potatoes. Of which, at that time, I was so upset because I had to wait for an hour and a half to get my dinner every day because you had to actually clean it, cook it. You had to do what everyone dreams about now. But what really is is key to my heart is that my ancestors, my great auntie went to America on a boat, never to return. She was forced out of Ireland in the 1930s through hunger and malnourishment. My other great auntie and great uncle that would have been, uh, they died of malnourishment at birth. And my great-grandmother that I did not meet died of malnourishment. So these people, although I did not meet them, I heard all the stories from my grandma and from my granddad. And it was kind of fear and hunger never to be in that position. There was, there was ultimately always an element of respect for hard work, but I just thought that the people had to, had to suffer too much and I would figure a way out. No, I was very lucky the television was coming in then, even though we, I think the color TV just started when I got born, when I was born. And there was also a sense of embarrassment because I used to pass on the school bus into the local towns and, and I'd see all these new houses and I'd see all these new cars and I would wonder why we're so poor. My nan used to say to me, they don't own them things. And I go, yes, they do. They do because their their parents are working here. But it was only, now reflecting on all of that, 
maybe the fact that I, if I had known my nan was so right in so many things, it may not have given me the push that I have got now. But I saw like a fake, fast, uh, processed life in the distance. But I really, really, really wanted that. But I had to do with this uh, poor farming background where my nan would knit her own jumper and 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 never buy any clothes. My nan was the first person to wear trousers because she wore trousers in the 1940s and 50s on the farm and made her own, where people were laughing at her. When, when my nan and granddad got married, my nan was a laborer and my granddad built the house that I actually grew up in. So at that time, although incredibly embarrassing and not wanting to bring my friends around, it, it relaying that story to you just gives me nothing but I'm so proud, I'm delighted I experienced it. And sometimes having, and it, it even relays to now, and I think all of us sh should realize that having a difficult time is one of the greatest blessings that you can have. Because if every day was perfect, then it'd be boring <laughs> and it'd be normal. And then what are you going to do then? <laughs> yeah. How do you enjoy the good times? Exactly. So from, from sort of 11 to 50 uh, in school, you've developed this firework business and you've obviously started to... Uh, informally at least learn about business and what works and you've learned some important valuable lessons around treating people right as you said doing deals yeah um not being too flashy whereby you get caught like you made to get in court keep your head down um yeah. before we sort of go on to the next stage of development in terms of your business life what were you learning at school well thankfully in my very early year, years i was a incredibly good at English and maths and by the age of eight I was able to pass a GCSE paper so I had a very good foundation and I was always a, a grade A student at, at maths so I was able to I guess blag it a bit in my early days and but I did really realize by the age of 12 that that school wasn't for me and not trying to say the 12 year olds out there now but there's a lot of them school as the way it is is not it would not be for them now it's you know, it's great for self-development being in school and it's great to have some sort of basis of education but i think as long as you can read and write and you you're good with numbers you you don't have to just solely think that school is your main, you, you know, your main path for success. Mm. And in terms of the education system, not that you just experienced, but that you see out there now, um, do you, like me, feel a little frustrated that we haven't expanded the academic framework somewhat so that actually the kids out there who perhaps... It's not that necessarily they're, they're ac academically not bright, but it's actually they get bored. The th you know, the boredom threshold's fairly low. They're perhaps looking to do something beyond what would be considered the norm. And sadly, in this country still, I'd say setting up your own business is seen as unique. It's not seen as something that people will naturally fall into. Um, 
you know, for me, it's, we're, we're still teaching in the 21st century the way we were in the 20th. And it, it does frustrate the life out of me. Well, I'm an only child and anything when it comes to the masses, I'm not a fan of. Now, that comes down to football as well, which we'll not talk about too much. <laughs> I'm in the wrong city not to support football, aren't I? But, and I see that school is just something for the masses. Now, if you were to be, there's a reason there's a 1% of anything, whether it's wealth, whether it's success in health. There is a 1% for a reason, and the 1% don't do what the 100% do. The 1% do what the 1% do. <laughs> so, but, so I left school at 14, and I can only, I, 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 I don't like to slate other ways people do things because I want to be very careful to say that I just like doing what I like doing in the way I want to do it, and I've always been like that. Now, and our whole conversation will be on, not on theory, it will be on practice. So my direction in life or how I advise anybody is always based on how my direction of life is. I decided to leave school of 14 for two reasons. I, I had made close to probably a quarter of a million pounds which was a lot of money. Which was By the age of 14. At the age of 14. Was that all through fireworks? There was a few other things I was buying mm. and selling, okay. but nothing, nothing, yeah, fireworks was the most dangerous one. Mm. There's rag, <laughs> rag trade clothes, anything. I, I was, I was, if you, if they had it, I would buy it mm. and I would sell it. Okay. Um, but at the time I w ended up, but I ended up being Irish under 14 snooker champion because in my early days, my dad owned a pub and my mum would go to the weekends to the pub and I realised I was quite good at pool. So there was a two-pronged approach. I had the money behind me and all of a sudden I became a successful snooker player. Now, in the village or in the local towns, that was a big deal, being an Irish champion at anything. So I had this vision of someday being a professional snooker player and with the confidence and the money behind me, I saw the only restraint was school from stopping me doing anything. So it's a bit hard to argue with a 14 year old child whenever your parents say you need to go to school. And I say, why? Because I make more money than you. <laughs> when the principal calls you in and say, Sean, of which I was always respectful at school and, and it was well liked with all the, although I was a bit cheeky, I always, I got away with everything. A bit like now, <laughs> no different. But whenever the principal says, you know, your school is very important. And I say, how much money do you make a year? Because mm. I make more than you. <laughs> it kind of stops people in the tracks apart from the only reason is they'd say, well, you don't understand. Mm. And I'd say, no, you don't understand. So where are we up to? I'm a 14 year old that knows what he wants to do although slightly wrong, which I'm sure we'll come into along the way, slightly deluded with my confidence and my knowledge that I think at 14 I knew it all, uh, of which I guess even in my 20s I, uh, I think I knew it all, which we realise the older we get we don't know. <laughs> but apart from the flawed part about me knowing I knew it all, I knew my direction, I knew that I had of the, I had of the work ethic, I knew that I would not give up, 
and I will be so stubborn that, that I will achieve whatever I have to achieve. So then I went into my my business and my snooker career from the age of 14 more seriously. Mm. And so you've left school of 14, um, snooker then you start to focus on very seriously Correct. because you've, you've become champion. But your business interests continue. Um, and what do you do with the business at that time? Is there a stage where you have to formalise? Because obviously you're not going into school, so you're not selling into your mates at that yep. point. Um, how have you translated and transformed from that informal business into something that's a little bit more, if I can use the word, professional? Well, I, I supplied... The businesses I was supplying to fruit and veg shops, they were great for selling fireworks. They were like somehow undercover. Nobody thought that you'd get fireworks in a fruit and veg shop. And I, I used to do a lot of uh, home drops and a lot of people would come to the house. My, my nan would sit reading her newspaper and I'd have packages of £10, £20, £30. People would knock the door and say, could I have £30 worth of fireworks, please? My nan would go, there you go. And I'd, I'd come home to maybe sometimes £50, £60 every night along with my other trades that I was doing out and about. So I, I, one thing that has continued to the moment I'm sitting here, I'm up early and I'm in bed late. Mm. So I have an 18 hour day and it's, it's proved that if it, most people have an eight hour day, but I have an 18 hour day. So it's obvious that if I do, providing I have uh, uh, a product or, or even if I'm the product that, that it has value and I'm there twice as many hours as anybody else uh, you know, it'll it'll, it'll, it'll do well mm. and so you've professionalised your business and you're into your snooker how far does that progress? Well over the next six years I slowed down on my business to focus on my snooker career because I'm a believer in not to be the best at anything, you have to be completely in it. You can't have too many things that you're doing part-time or you'll end up not being the best at anything. So I slowed down my businesses, which was a bit crazy to think that that now you don't slow down your businesses, you usually sell them. Or you, but I hadn't got that knowledge to sell on something. So I slowed it down and I, and I focused on my snooker career uh, massively. By the age of 21, I'd won every single Irish title it was to offer from junior to senior uh, I think is more than 15 titles which I retained many of them I became number two in the world juniors by 2001 and I made the decision then that I sort of needed to leave Ireland and go somewhere in England to give myself a proper chance at a professional career so you've gone to the age of 21 now, are we? 21, 22? 20, 21, yeah, yeah. 2002. Uh, and you decide, right, Ireland I've sort of conquered in terms of the snooker world. I need to get to the U get to mainland UK. Correct. Um, and you've you've chosen, and why wouldn't you, Liverpool. Exactly. Uh, and I think it wasn't long after you landed that, that I sort of first met you uh, at a downtown event. And you were, I dug out a, um, a press cutting 
when I was going through some old papers a few weeks ago, I think I told you this, there was a photograph of you at one of our dues <laughs> and it says professional snooker paper, a player. Um, and and that, that, that was young Sean sort of rocking up on the Liverpool scene. And back at, at that stage, you know, that was a, an incredible time socially in Liverpool. You know, people were starting to earn a bit of cash. Property developers were starting to make a, a go of things in the city. Um, lots of developments taking place, lots of regeneration. We were on the cusp of capital of culture, all that sort of thing. And I'm guessing for a young guy who's a professional snooker player, that's almost the perfect storm. You know, you're coming into a really exciting, vibrant city, learning about new things that go on in a city such as Liverpool. Um, and as I say, you, you snooker career is, I'm guessing, ready to, to really take off and fly. So what happens next? Well, I think it was the perfect storm, but the main reason was with the people I've met and why I'm sitting here today. So I moved into a building in the city centre with my cousin and instantly, as you just mentioned, property developers, I met two very influential property developers who still to this day are one of the most recognised in the city. I became friends with them. They invited me, me and my cousin to a roof garden party. Uh, I think you're smiling so you know which one that is. And, uh, they instantly took to me. They, they, they probably saw that uh, something in them, that, that of which later they did see that they saw that I had a bit of a drive and determination. And cheekily enough, I asked them to sponsor me. And incredibly, they invited me on a, on a, on a holiday to Cyprus and, uh, and they agreed. So I had... I had the world. I I was in the elite circle. I'd met, as you said, I was at a downtown event. In those days was one of the biggest things for me to go to. There was clubs and bars opening everywhere. And there was these multi-millionaire business people that I've been introduced to. Many of them I'm still friends and some of them are my best friends still. So it was an incredible whirlwind of meeting amazing people in an amazing city. Uh, and the perfect time for me. So, it again, there's incredibly good, incredibly bad with that. Because instantly, although I had the sponsorship deal set up, my mind starts looking and thinking, <laughs> these guys are multi-millionaires. What the hell am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I, I tried to focus that year. I went from 400 in the world to 80 in the world. I started turned pro. There was over 400 pros that time and I, and I instantly cut the ranks to 80 in the world. But as the season was going on, I just knew, like I knew when I was 11, like I knew when I was even younger than 11 and, and I knew as I slowed my businesses down for my snooker career, I know that if I'm not 100% focused on something, it's not going to end up where I want it to be. So, the end of the season came and I, I picked up the phone to my dad. That was in 2004, end of 2004. And I says, dad, uh, it's over. And I'm actually, I'm getting a bit emotional now, but he says, what's over? I says, my snooker career. And 
he was kind of silent and he didn't get it. And I, he goes, why? I says, dad, it's not for me. He goes, what are you going to do? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. <laughs> but I do know that I'm surrounded by multimillionaires and I know that I need to figure out what they're doing. <laughs> now, there was a bit of it where when I was playing snooker some days, I was in a room on my own for hours. I'm a social person. I love being out and about. I love, like, the fact that I'm able to get a chance to speak here with you is amazing because I love sharing stories. I love listening. I love debating things. And I love sort of that human interaction that you can't get when you're, when you're isolated playing snooker. And every, any chance I had when I was practicing, and if I got a phone call from one of my elders, of which they go by now, my, my group of elders that have took me under their wing, I would ditch my queue and I'd run out the door and I'd get a taxi straight to see where they were, what restaurant, what development, and seek how could I help. Because my mind was distracted, I knew that that was the reason. But I didn't know how I would ever get here. I just knew that, it's like, if you want to take over the island, just burn the boat. (laughs) And that's what I do. If I know something is not right... I don't go back. I don't give it an option Mm. to go back. And had a really difficult sort of, after telling my dad, my dad uh, in later years, I found really took it it hard. My nan, my mom took it hard and they they were kind of concerned about me. And I went on a, on a holiday to Thailand. I went to go on a, on a world sort of tour to try and give myself a bit of time. I gave my sponsorship back. I cut all ties. I had no income. I did enough money to do me in the bank for a little while. And I, so I went on a holiday, arrived in Thailand with my friend. And instantly I started reading about land and development opportunities. It was, it was kind of big globally then. It was quite big, 2000 and early 2005. Mm. It was massive... Uh, prosperity then and madly enough within two months I stayed in Thailand I bought a piece of land I went to school to learn the language and I, I became uh, incredibly knowledgeable in the planning of, of land in Thailand I set up a company <laughs> it was a, but I realised then that my mind needs to be really occupied <laughs> that was a holiday <laughs> So ultimately, within the next six months, I, I became fluent in Thai. I subdivided land. I sold it to holidaymakers. I was like the local. And I realized that I was able to adapt so quickly if I put my mind to it. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, well, that's part of the story I didn't know. No, that there's lots of stories of story. you don't know. Well, yeah, some of them don't, probably don't want to. Um, so, so at some stage... Um, You've decided, and it's probably through your Liverpool connections. Connect, correct. Um, listen, this this land and property and development thing seems to be right for me. That that's where I'd like to to sort of focus my future career on. Uh, but before we we talk about how that's gone on and developed, mm-hmm. and how you've created a very successful business on the back of that, I just want to take you back to that snooker mm-hmm. decision because. There will be people out there now who would give almost anything to be 80th in the world in a leading sport, mm-hmm. which snooker is. Um, and you can flippantly say, well, number 80. But actually, 
number 80 in anything in the world is pretty damn good. Yeah, I had a decent wage. Yeah. And, and so, and listen, at that age, potential to go even higher in the rankings. Let's be brutal about this. Had you stayed focused, continues with that sponsorship, being as determined and committed as clearly you are, you may have gone all the way. Who knows? I just think, Sean, at such an age, with all the glamour as well, let's not forget that surround sport. Correct. What a brave and courageous decision that was. How long did it take you to come to that decision? Was it something that sort of bubbled around in your head for a while or it was instantaneous? Because that's, I like to get to know what makes people tick, how instinctive it was. What was the the rationale behind that decision, well, which was huge? I, I think if you don't evolve and grow as a person, you either slow down, go static or die. Now, I did a simple calculation. Ronnie O'Sullivan's worth 10 million. No matter how good I think I am, I'm not as good as Ronnie O'Sullivan. And I realized that quickly, the most I could make out of snooker would be three or four million pounds. That's the best achievement if I dedicated my whole life. And I was not, my focus hadn't gone. And my focus had started to go. Now, I think one of my greatest uh, skills is living in the real world and knowing, knowing my potential, but also not letting my heart limit the potential. And, and I used my head and I realized that if the, the, the most I'm going to get out of snooker is three or four million pounds or possibly zero, possibly an income, sorry. So I was, I was still going to make at least a thousand pound a week or two thousand a week. But we've got a long life ahead of us. And what am I going to do after? If you look at the percentage of sporting people with a lot more money than a few million pounds, for example, football players, when it's all over, a lot of them end up with nothing. A lot of them end up with uh, addictions and they have no foundation. They have nothing to underpin their future. And I'm, I quite quickly realized that I'm going to live a long life. And as long as I stay healthy and stay positive, I need to figure out something that can adapt and grow as I adapt and grow. And that, that, was, that was the main decision for me to, to quit. Yeah, I'm still trying to sort of get my head around that decision process at the age of, what, 24? Mm -hmm. 24, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it is an incredible... Well, I think, it, I think it is distinctly different actually, Sean, because I think leaving school at 14, you're not giving up an awful lot of glamour, well, let's maybe. face it. You oh, know, I, I mean, if you went, if your school was anything like mine, you know, it wasn't the most glamorous, <laughs> you know, and as much as we might've been very popular and well liked and all the rest of it, I wasn't massively sorry to see the back of it although I did go through to the end of the uh, the term um, so I think that's you know there is a difference and I think the point I'm trying to make here I suppose in the conversation is that my guess is people will look at your lifestyle and look at you and think bit of a flash Ari bit of a flash kid this um, but actually what that decision tells me is that Despite that image, 
there is far more depth to what goes on in the head of Sean O'Neill because actually somebody who's simply interested in flash Mm -hmm. and glamour and surrounding themselves with those sort of things would have just snuck with the snooker, my mate. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I do underplay the fact that there was lots of girls, lots of parties and uh, lots of invitations for holidays and I could, I, I was enjoying myself. That, that, that is true. But there's always going to be lots of parties. There's always going to be lots of girls. There's always going to be lots of people. And I, I, I did look, I do look to the future, as you can tell now. And when I speak to people and I say, you, you have to enjoy yourself, but don't be deluded about what the future can bring you if you don't make the right decisions along the way. Okay. Right. Well, we're going to have a short break. And then we're going to talk about what that then led to, which is a hugely successful business. Um, But not only that, I think a significant personal development um, within yourself, um, which is now, I think, again, going to take you to the next chapter of your career. So uh, as I say, let's take a short break. We'll be back in a few moments uh, to continue a frank conversation with Sean O'Neill. Welcome back to A Frank Conversation. And uh, today I'm talking to Sean O'Neill, who's the Managing Director of Adore Group. We've been talking about Sean's early career. So started as uh, a very young entrepreneur at the age of 11, uh, established, of all things, a successful uh, firework company in his hometown in Ireland. Went on then to become a professional snooker player, met a couple of property developers and decided actually Actually, I want to make multi-millions rather than single millions and took himself off to Thailand to sort of chill and find out what the next steps were for him in his career. Whilst in Thailand, he buys some land, becomes fluent in Thai. And I think it's fair to say Sean had a fairly decent six months or so in that part of the world. So take it from there. That's correct. I think so. The first few months are incredible. I'm living on a villa, so you can picture this. I've got fresh fruit every morning. I'm looking over the Gulf of Thailand with the sunrise at 6 a.m. I'm reading books. I'm going to the gym. I'm toned. I'm tanned. I'm, I'm, I'm just living the dream. And about six months in, I realized that sometimes expectation is greater than reality. So if this, the dream has now become reality and I'm no longer sighted about it, how am I going to live my next 60, 70 years? So I was still in touch with some great friends from, from Liverpool, including my elders. And I rang one of them one day and says, I want to come home. But I said home is in Liverpool, not home is in Ireland. And I realized that home is really where you have great people around you and good connections. And I decided that I'd sell up in Thailand. I'd return to Liverpool, still not knowing what I'm going to do. And 
I arrived back in October 2005. Uh, had a had a catch up with my elders, had a nice dinner, and try to figure out what I could do. Now at that time, I was still struggling to explain to people without sounding like a lunatic. <laughs> why the snooker season had started and I wasn't there. So the only answer I could think about was, is I had invested, I bought my first uh, apartment in Liverpool, which I'd moved into in 2003. I purchased that soon after and I bought a few off-plan properties. Now at that time there was a massive boom and my answer was, I'm a property investor. And to my shock, this is where, I guess, sport and business goes hand in hand. I had such a following of people asking what Sean's doing, why he's doing it. And they realized that if Sean's doing it, there must be some method in his madness. So coming back to October 2005, I spoke with my elders, had a meeting. They gave me some flashy brochures. And they gave me a price list of properties they had. And they gave me the discount on when I initially had, had purchased my properties. They gave me a bit of advice and saying, well, if you're going to take these properties, this is what I would do. And it was no different than my firework days. Exactly the same, it clicked. So I had a phone call from my ex, the, uh, the, the guy that used to own the snooker club I was in in Ireland. And he said to me, why did you quit? I said, I'm a property investor. I had a big flashy brochure in my flat. And he goes to me, oh, really? I've just sold a snooker club for one million pounds. He says, any chance you could... F I says, any chance you could maybe recommend? Well, I said, I'm dealing with the guys that had previously sponsored with me. They're my friends. I've bought some of them myself. And with, within three months, I had over three million pounds invested into Liverpool property. And it simply boiled down to a few things that I often answer the question now, if somebody wants to sell me something, the first thing I say is, well, how many have you got? <laughs> and the answer was, well, I had so many because I believed in it. Who am I buying them off? They're my friends, I'm business partners, they're my elders, they were my ex-sponsors. And ultimately I created the link. I was then the link because I was a trusted person. I had the energy, I was willing to get on flights. I was willing to do viewings. I was willing to be the agent broker. And I was, I was able to get a, a fair market value discount. And, and it just worked seamlessly. Mm. That brought me into 2006, of which I had a phenomenal year 2006 and by April 2007, which was 18 months after I'd started, I'd probably amassed about three million pounds. Excellent. This sounds like heaven on earth. It was. Um, and the parties really started. But of course, you'd left heaven on earth in Thailand, didn't you? I mean, that, do you know what the amusing line there was? So I had all the, you know, I had fruit getting delivered to the beach, these sunsets, I was reading books, I was at the gym. I'm sure there were lots of parties and everything else going on for somebody in the 20s. Uh, 
And I couldn't imagine doing that for the next 80 years. <laughs> yeah, I terrible, isn't it? <laughs> Six pack and tan. <laughs> but listen, again, I think what I'm learning about you is that there's something within you which motivates to go and find success. And I'm guessing as well, wants to uh, explore their own limitations. Um, but equally, you know, when we all have a bit of this, I think in us, want some recognition. So, you know, with due respect, you're probably not going to get that in Thailand. Mm-hmm. We're in a city like Liverpool, which you've got to know and you've got people around you who you love and respect. That's going to happen. And so we go through to 2007, you using your um, key skill base, which is uh, sales technique, being able to put a deal together, getting people's trust. And as you rightly say, creating those connections and those networks where all those linkages start to make sense. And that then enables you to accumulate somewhere in the region of £3 million in 2007. Mm -hmm. And then we all know what happens in 2008. Because that is the time when actually, if you are a property developer, um, it is (laughs) tattooed, (laughs) stringed into your skull. Um, that it all sort of came tumbling down with the the the, the crash, mm. um, and again, without knowing the detail of what happened with you on a personal level, we've touched on this in previous conversations we've had. I think it was dup- doubly difficult for you, sure, in that some people lost personal wealth. You were losing personal wealth, but you were also responsible for investing money of people who you loved and cared about. Is that right? Yeah, so the only grave mistake I've made that I believe is I followed the masses once. And at that time, in 2007, everybody was borrowing money. I was using my own money all those years. And the first time in 2007, the bank approached me and and I have to say, I, I listened to too many people and greed set in and I wanted more. So I leveraged, I signed a personal guarantee and thinking nothing of it because everything's going up, up, up in the world. I sat like a fat cat with this pinstripe suit that was starting to bust on me because I'd ignored the gym a bit. I was making so much money. I was eating... There was always cakes for lunch, which there, which there isn't anymore. And, and I remember I was asked the question, and that's why I'm very careful I'm asked the questions now, is how long will we be here was, my, was my, my office manager's question. And I made this comment of a typical mid-20-year-old comment that when you really don't know what you're talking about, but you say something. And I went along the lines of blah, 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 financial crisis of all time, unless that happens, blah, 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 we make millions. Basically, I was trying to say if something, if the biggest financial crisis of all time happened, that would be the only way that it, we, it would stop. <laughs> Purely ignorant. 
that came up. That was June. I was sitting, and I, you remember that the the subprime lending of in the American subprime lending of over a trillion dollars had hit the news. Now it still didn't bother me because it was more I was believe I thought that I could control all this. I can control the losing of my own money. But at that time, my mom and dad refinanced their houses in support of me maybe by me coaxing them and I uh, they thought it was the right thing to do my mom wasn't too happy about doing it but she did my dad was so supportive of me he's all in that was June by August 2007 my greatest role model and my best friend died which was my nan who kept telling me this thing doesn't make sense. <laughs> and I used to say, Nan, you're old, you don't understand. <laughs> Within six months, I had uh, someone went bankrupt on me in the tune of over seven figures, which then had a ripple effect. My office closed. And ultimately I went from the multimillionaire in in my mid to late twenties, to the minus multimillionaire within twelve months, uh, you quite rightly said I'd inherited a farm, which was in my family's name for over since nineteen fifteen. I have the deeds for, mm. I still have the deeds for, <laughs> and uh, I really, really had to think long, hard, and deep. The bank was trying to close in on me. And I had a choice. I either had to find a way out or give up. Now, my screensaver on my phone to this day is my grandma. And I remember sitting thinking, well, this is only money. I'm not starving. I'm not malnourished. My ancestors who didn't, who didn't get to see their families because some of them died, how can I sit and complain when it's only of monetary value? Albeit we could lose the farm, albeit my mom could lose her house, albeit my dad could lose his house. I just have to figure my way out. And all I have to do is what I always did before, is stay loyal, stay honest and keep working. I went and bought a brand new Aston Martin. I suited and booted myself like someone that had just won the lotto from the little money I had left. I told the banks to F off and don't call me again. And they're going to get the money each month. And if they don't, then they can do what they want, but don't call me. And ultimately I fronted it like nothing had ever changed. I had, uh, I became, this is where it really, really changed for me as in, I realized that we all want to make money, but there's more about money and money can really damage you. So I had a lot of phone calls from investors that had, had done the same where they had inherited their money, their children's money, their wives' inheritance from all. It was unbelievable, the stories. There was quite a few suicides in Ireland. Uh, and at that time, the world's, or sorry, Ireland's richest man, Sean Quinn, was actually in the middle of going bankrupt. So it was a lot of turmoil, but ultimately I, I worked closer with my elders, with my investors. And ultimately I thought that if there's a way where we can all look after each other, 
if we're closer together, we've got a chance. And I, I actually set up some of some of the first ever companies of their kind in the UK. Which of which one of them was the rent to rent model, where I would take your property, and I would guarantee you a rent, and I will put my own tenants in it. And I did that because a lot of my investors had put their properties with it property agents that weren't acting just on their best interest or maybe the agent had multiple properties of similar type. So I started doing deals individually and fast forward more than a decade later, all those people have followed me, never lost one rent payment ever. And I had a following of tenants that followed me because they wanted to live in my properties. And I now have over 200 tenants because of that. Mm. So we've skipped over the decade. We skipped a decade quickly. And we're not going to do that no. because the 2007 8 thing uh, is a period where I think we too quickly forgot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember having a conversation with a guy who was um, a very, very uh, big sort of banking personality in Liverpool around 2006. And I think it was an apartment in Beetham Tower that had been valued at a million pounds. It was like big news because of the first million yeah, pound I remember that apartment. headline. And he said to me what your grandma had said to you, which was this just can't continue. And there were a few other people around the time, mm. 2005, 2006, you know, financial experts I know experts is a bad uh, word to use these days nobody wants to listen to them who was who was sort of you know amberlight at least flashing look guys you need to see that this isn't sustainable yeah um but we sort of motored on towards until it all came crashing down and people continued to borrow on the back of valuations and all that sort of thing and a lot of people as you've mentioned Sean didn't come through the other end of that you know whether it be through suicides or just whether it be that they dropped out of business, they went and did other things, but they've never quite managed to recover. I mean, I know people now a lot and it's, and it's sad to see, you know, you can see the pain in their eyes even today. Mm. And, you know, it's just over a decade since all of that happened. And now it seems to me that, not just in property, but, you know, tech companies and other businesses, the valuations that are being attached to these things, it's just not real money. And at some point there will be a day of reckoning, I think. Well, there's always going to be a correction because I guess we're not computers and we all, we we, we can't make things slow down when they're going fast and we can't just make soft landings happen in the financial market because there's too many cogs in the wheel as such. I think, uh, and again, from my own experience and and from my own practices, 10 years on, I I have almost zero debt. I don't have debt now. Um, And if you're in a position of any business where you have a, a low percentage of debt and you have a good business, and you have USPs, and you have got work ethic, and you are good to your staff and your customers, or whatever that 
you know, formula may be, you will get through because you have there will be a downturn, but there will be an there will be an upturn, and you just have to be, you just have to keep your formula and and keep what you would do every day irrelevant to how the market is going. And and then you'll be safe because when you do hit a downturn, it hurts badly and it takes a long time to recover. So you're better moving slowly, slowly in that one direction. If you can control your business, don't worry about what the rest of the world's doing. Just just look after yourself. Hmm. And I'm sp- supposing that's particularly pertinent when you've got all this noise about Brexit and, as I say, potential recession and all that sort of thing going on. It's just the case, really, isn't it? Your advice would be stay focused because you can only do what you can do around your own situation. You can't control those external forces. Well, my rule is if I... Anything inside my front door of my house or my office or my staff's homes, I can help or impact but if it's out on the street whether it's owned by Liverpool Council or it's owned by Westminster or it's owned by Brussels there's so many factors that you can't control so why would you worry about them especially when you don't know what's going to be good or what's going to be bad in the future and nobody knows and we all agree that nobody knows so if there's an uncertainty I think this is all great I, I'm, I'm employing now and I'm investing in people probably at a cheaper rate than ever because these people are delighted. Anyone now that wants money to invest in are so nervous. When they meet someone like me, they're delighted because I'm willing to put my money in. So I can get a bit, I can actually employ you for a better rate because you know you've got security. Or I can invest in you and negotiate better because you know you've got me as a, as, a, as a fallback or as a mentor or someone that can guide you and keep your mind. So there's a lot of value at the moment, I think. I think one of the t- this is one of the greatest times. Okay. Not sure whether I'd agree with that, but let's talk about what happened post-2008 in terms of your decision-making processes then. So it sounds to me as though you've assessed the situation You've got a challenge. I would say if you reacted in exactly the way I would react in that situation in which you front it, mm-hmm. you don't sort of cower in the corner and go, oh, you know, let's switch all the lights off and hope it goes away. You've really took it on head on. But then more interestingly, you've diversified your business. So you've gone from being somebody who was selling, investing, property so then into this rental market and created something that is actually quite a unique product so I, I quickly realized that my key skill is that I enjoy being around people and I wouldn't be where I am now if I hadn't got good people around me so people and numbers are the key to nearly anything if your numbers are correct on your, on, your, on your spreadsheets and you've got good people, you can do anything. So quickly I realized that going forward, any business that I will have in the future will not be owned 100% by me. I'm happy to share, I'm happy to give, uh, 
give a directorship to other people. I'm happy to invest. I just want to make sure that I'm not left on my own because that's the reason I got out of snooker. I am the, I was a solo person, but I entered the business world of being a solo business person. <laughs> and I realized that slowly by, I haven't got all the knowledge quickly. I'm not the clever 20 year old that I thought I was. I'm still good with numbers, still good with people, but I need to find the greatest people in their field and either start the business from scratch or go to people that are struggling with their businesses because they're not good with numbers or they're not good with people. And some of my greatest businesses now are people that just need me to underpin their weaknesses and vice versa. So now I've got the best property manager in the city. I've got some of the best business partners in the city in their own fields. And I've just collectively gathered together a, a great bunch of people that I'm proud to call my team. Excellent. So you've got a great team together at the Adore Group. Tell us about that. So I think if you try to describe the Adore Group, it's, it's difficult. But our key focus is finding great people and investing in them. It's varied where I, I do a lot of uh, business consultancy. Of a lot of it I actually don't charge for because I prefer to consult in your business then get a chance of buying part of it than getting paid a fee for going in and, and figuring out your numbers. Um, there's a lot of research done on various businesses that aren't in the UK that I could possibly bring into the UK. I recently went to Japan for se several meetings to try and see could I bring an investor and, and bring a business partner from there, which is still ongoing. Uh, so every day is quite different. I We spend a lot of time now uh, meeting great people in the city. And even in June, we bought uh, a well-known tailor shop, tailoring business, and an estate agency and a wedding store. And that was in June, we bought the three of them. In August, each of those businesses are up over 25% average. The best August that any of those businesses ever had. And September is now better than August. And all that is because I bought those businesses and give a share back to the team. Hmm. And I looked at the numbers and I saw that the numbers were slightly uh, inefficient would be the word. And I suppose it sounds like modest that that's all I've done, but it is all I've done. <laughs> I've just guided the people. And, 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 and then people are the reason that, 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 uh, that we're doing so well. Hmm. Any interest still in property? Um, I, I've bought a f I, I just buy individual bits of property that I know is undervalued and I usually buy it as a long-term investment. I'm more into scalable businesses now where, where I know something can be brought to a high level and there's multiples. Uh, that can be made at it. 
ultimately, I just love to see people going home to their families and saying, this is what they own, this is what they made. And, 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 and my, my business partners and team are like my, because I have no brothers or sisters, they are my family. And ultimately, I like to find something that will be scalable, that'll bring more people under, and then I'll be able to surround myself with more great people. Okay. Um, if you were listening to the start of this conversation, my guess is people would inevitably draw the conclusion that your motivation is cash. I think as the conversations continued and we've begun to explore what really turns you on, cash is important. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anybody should uh, apologise for that because it's what makes the world go round and it's a great motivating force for everyone, I think. But actually, it's making a difference, isn't it? You like making a difference to your own personal circumstances, but equally to the people that you're close to and then the people subsequently you work with. It seems to me that that is the real great motivator for Sean O'Neill. Absolutely. I would say if I hadn't got the cash, I wouldn't be able to do what I can do now. So, but it's definitely not the driver. And my lifestyle doesn't change the more that I have now. I don't think that I'll ever have a private jet or a, a yacht. Uh, and I think that actually this morning when I went, I just went boxing just before. And I, I was thinking that when's the last day that I didn't, that I would have changed it if I, if I made a hundred millions and it wouldn't be any different. This morning I would go boxing and now I come to speak to you. I've got lunch at one o'clock with a really nice uh, guy who does some work for me. I've got a three o'clock lunch with somebody else, which will probably be a coffee. And then I've got another one at six. I have a wonderful day meeting amazing people and people that I would want to meet if I was not working. The difference is that somehow I'm able to, they're, they're able to confide in me. They tell me about sometimes personal issues or they, they give me financial dilemmas and somehow I'm able to help. And to, to get a text message or, or to be invited for dinner and to be given a thanks for helping their family or their lives is just the most be amazing thing that you can do for someone. Hmm. Um, the Adore Group aside, you still have this burning ambition as an individual. And again, you and I have shared conversations previously where one of the things that you felt uncomfortable with in the past is public speaking. Correct. And that's not a one-on-one -on -one conversation. You're very good at this sort of thing. And as you've confessed, you're good with people. But there's a difference between that and being able to get up and publicly present. Um, and again, you took a conscious decision nearly enough 12 months ago now that that was going to change. Yep. So where's that up to? Well, I've just come back from London where I was at the Amazon headquarters with Esther Stanhope, which was, uh, which she used to be a, a live BBC reader. So she's took me under her wing. Um, I've, uh, I did two hour interview on, on TV and it's become really comfortable. Uh, I, I've met some really great people already being in London and I'm one step closer to opening my, my school. 
Tell us about the school. Don't leave it hanging. <laughs> so we all want to learn. I guess we all want to read books. We're, we're constantly looking for information, how to be better. That's learning. That's like being at school. That's all I've ever done. And you did touch on education and schools uh, as, we, as we know them at the moment. And it is like basically processing sausages through a sausage factory. They all go in, they learn the same, they go to the same classes and there's such, everyone is different. Some people don't like history, some people don't like geography, some people aren't capable of certain, uh, certain things, but, and I recognize that quite young. So my, my plan is to be able to hold workshops and have a school that is going to give alternative education to what interests people. You do find some of the most uh, less clever people in the school, know all the football teams, mm. know all the scores, know who scored the last match, know who the players are. Does that mean that they're stupid? Absolutely not. They've found something they're interested in. And once you're interested in something, learning becomes so much fun. So my school is going to be is in planning planning at the moment how it's going to go to the public but it's ultimately going to have myself and some of the most successful people in in the northwest or even maybe the uk that are going to hold workshops that are going to teach not from a book they're going to teach by what they have done and what they plan to do i'm going to possibly open up and mentor and do one-to-ones and I have another group of really established, successful people that are willing to join the Adore group in, in, in sort of bringing this right through. Fantastic. So uh, from traditional school and becoming an entrepreneur through that route, albeit somewhat uniquely, um, you're going to set your own school up and that's going to be equally unique. Um, Sean, it's been a pleasure. Sean O'Neill, Thank thanks for having much. a frank conversation Amazing. with Downtown and Business. <laughs>